It used to be cool to build a B2B software company to 100 million in revenue. But you know what's cool now? Scaling a B2B tech company to a billion dollars in annual recurring revenue and potentially a market value of 50 billion or even 100 billion. I'm Dharmesh Thacker, general partner at Battery Ventures. And on this episode of the Billion Dollar B2B podcast, we will be talking to Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dmitry. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Likewise, Dimitri. As you probably know, we've been talking and writing a lot lately about this billion-dollar B2B phenomena, the forces powering growth at a set of highly valuable B2B tech companies in the market today. These companies are on track to achieve a billion dollars in revenue if they haven't already. And I know CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity company that you co-founded, just hit the billion-dollar ARR mark earlier this year. That is quite an accomplishment. How does it feel? Thank you. Obviously, huge, huge accomplishment and, and not an accomplishment of any one person, but really everyone that's been involved in that journey from the original launch team that I hired on day one uh, when we started the company to everyone who's been through that journey with us along the way, obviously the team that's there now. So uh, it, it, takes, it takes a village, as they say, to, to get to that point. A lot of things have to go right, um, obviously execution, the market, the problem, the timing, all of that had to come together for this outcome. Just unbelievably proud of everything that uh, we've accomplished along the way. We're here mostly, Dimitri, today to talk about how companies like CrowdStrike are able to successfully scale to that level. The lessons they offer to other smaller startups that want to walk the same path and aspire to be the next CrowdStrike. Uh, maybe we start with a little bit about your own personal background, your journey to the U.S. from Russia. I believe that was in 1994. And how you first got involved in the computer security industry? Yeah, you know, I was uh, growing up in Russia without a computer. So I got a computer when I was 10 or 11 years old. And ultimately, uh, the family immigrated to America. And one of the things I got really interested in with my dad was elliptic curve cryptography, which was just becoming a hot thing. And my dad and I started working on it. We started a small company providing encryption services. And that's what really pulled me into the cybersecurity ecosystem. And particularly, I realized that cybersecurity was much broader than, than just encryption. Encryption, of course, was fundamental, but um, the best algorithms in the world are not going to help you if someone steals your keys um, that you use to encrypt your data. And I realized back then, this was you know, mid to late 90s, that the cybersecurity ecosystem was much more of a cat and mouse game sort of a chess game with an opponent um, that's trying to outsmart you. And you always need to be on your toes, always need to be dynamic in how you defend yourself. And that sort of, sort of helped me along in my career. I ended up going to college, Georgia Tech, where I was the first graduate out of their uh, master's program in what was then called information security, now cybersecurity, and, and joined a startup right, right out of college um, that was working on email security. And right when I joined, Email security really meant encryption. How do you secure email communications? But within six months of my joining, I was running the research organization. Um, I was tasked to figure out the spam problem that just emerged in the early 2000s. At the time, it was like 5% of all email traffic was spam. So it was kind of a nuisance to our customers who were large Fortune 500 companies. And uh, of course, within a year, that 5% grew to 95%. And it became an existential problem for businesses trying to cope with the onslaught of emails, junk emails that were coming in, um, and they were trying to do business and, and figure out how to 
actually read the legitimate emails that um, that were being sent to them. And the whole company kind of pivoted. This was a company called Cypher Trust, uh, which was started mm-hmm. by Jay Chaudhry, who, of course, is, is the founder of Zscaler now, another amazing company. And that took me on a journey where Cypher Trust was ultimately acquired by a company called Secure Computing, um, where Warburg Pincus was a huge investor, uh, a company that... Uh, you know, was our um, early investor, Series A investor in CrowdStrike. That's where I got to know them. And uh, ultimately, uh, we got acquired by McAfee. Um, and then I ended up running all of research at McAfee. And ultimately, McAfee was acquired by Intel. And I decided that I, I've had enough of acquisitions and it was time to do my own thing. I do recall when you and I were at Intel together, Dimitri, you were thinking about starting CrowdStrike. But how did you end up on that idea in the first place? Can you talk about why endpoint security was such a problem then? And also, what were some of the founding principles of the company? Things that you did differently from the get-go that helped the company grow in the long run? So, you know, the the funny thing is that I wasn't focused on building an endpoint security company. I was focused on how do we solve this problem? And the problem uh, became very clear to me on January 10th of 2010. Uh, and the reason I know that date so well is because I was in Atlanta at the time um, having an offsite with my threat research team across McAfee. We had people who had flown over from all parts of the world, you know, looking to do planning for the year. And the whole offsite got derailed almost on day one when I got a call from a little company called Google um, who had discovered a breach in their network um, that ultimately they disclosed and, and attributed to China. And um, the folks at Google told me that um, not only was Google impacted, but there were a number of dozens of other victims um, who were targeted by the same actor, and uh, many of them were McAfee customers. And uh, they wanted our help to to investigate it, to reach out to those companies to help protect them. And, you know, immediately I sort of ended the offsite. We turned it into a war room and started investigating this and pulling on the strings and realized how broad this intrusion was. uh, it dawned on me very quickly that we were dealing with something that we had not really seen before, which was a nation-state intrusion into public, into private companies. Uh, and um, prior to that, everyone was sort of focused on criminal actors, on people sending spam, people building botnets, but dealing with an intelligence agency, dealing with the military service, that was relatively new. We had seen previous attacks that targeted governments. We had seen attacks targeting some dissidents. Tibetan dissidents, but not private companies. And when I saw that, I immediately thought that everything is going to change. In fact, I named that operation Aurora for the battleship of the Russian Revolution that fired the shot uh, that signaled to the Bolsheviks that uh, it was time to start the revolution. I thought that the intrusion into Google and the implications of that would change the cybersecurity field forever, and it did. And over the course Over the next year and a half, I ended up leading a lot of the investigations at McAfee, sort of pulling on the strings, thinking, is this a one-off? Did the Chinese hack Google and and, and two dozen uh, other companies, um, and we'll never see that again? Or has this been going on for a while? Are there more intrusions? And turned out that there were. The the next big operation was called Shady Wrath, which unveiled that the Chinese were actually doing this for many years. Uh, Most people weren't realizing this, but Starting with early 2000s, they were breaking into all sorts of industries, technology, agriculture, manufacturing, you name it. And it really unveiled the full scope of this. 
So I was looking at all of this and I was saying, oh my God, everyone's getting hacked. I coined this phrase that I'm sure you've heard Dharmesh many times now. It's been attributed to many people. I was actually, uh, uh, based on investigative reporting from New York Times and others, uh, they've pinpointed out that I was the origin of this quote, that there are only two types of companies, those that know that they've been hacked and those that mm -hmm. don't yet know. Back, back then yep. in 2011, I was widely criticized for that quote, that it was a hyperbole, that I was overhyping things. Turned out it was actually correct. And um, most companies were facing this onslaught of nation state attacks, stealing their intellectual property. Now, of course, we're seeing criminal groups with ransomware targeting companies and, and, and taking their businesses down. And I thought we, we had to solve this problem. Um, I couldn't really do it at McAfee. I tried, but it was too hard to do new investments. You know, it was a public company that was very much focused on uh, profitability metrics, on um, uh, uh, um, delivering value to shareholders. So it was just a constant battle of trying to innovate and being thwarted at every turn just because of the nature of a public company business and how difficult it is to solve that innovation dilemma. And finally, I was frustrated and um, um, thought there's got to be another way to do this, build a cloud-native solution that really tries to solve the problem of, of how do we stop breaches. And, and when we started thinking about it, the, the, the only way that you could really do it was not the endpoint. It was becoming very clear that um, on the network, the trend was that data was getting encrypted. So your ability to peer into that traffic was becoming less and less relevant. And at the same time, if you think about a network device, what it's trying to accomplish, when you're looking at these packets that are flowing over the wire, really what you're trying to do is interpret what that packet is going to do on the endpoint, right? Is that a piece of malware? Is that a legitimate file? And you're always playing catch up and you're always trying to do simulation of what that end state looks like through a virtual machine functionality. That's what FireEye was trying to do at the time or um, through protocol analysis. Uh, but you're never going to be ahead of the adversary. And it was much better, much more efficient to actually be on the endpoint, sort of record everything, um, have this flight data record effectively on the endpoint to understand what's happening, send it off to the cloud where you can aggregate all that data, analyze it, look for trends, and, and respond effectively. And um, you know, ultimately, that became what is now known as the EDR space. So the goal was not to come in and build an endpoint company. The, the goal was to come in and build a company that solves the problem and um, the only way we could figure out how to do that was through an endpoint solution. Got it. Now, Dimitri, it's an amazing story. Now, you weren't the only one thinking about it. There were some other companies that started thinking about the next-gen endpoint security right around the same time. I think Silence, Carbon Black, uh, perhaps even Sentinel-1. There might have been a few others. Uh, as a founder and CTO, what do you think are some of the decisions you made at the early stages of the company that help you differentiate yourself? So I would say it's a couple of things. One, it was an appreciation of the problem and the philosophy and the realization that you can never prevent everything. That at the end of the day, that epiphany I had 20 years earlier that, um, um, or at the time, 15 years earlier, that this was a cat and mouse game, that the adversary always has a move to play. I'm a chess player. I love chess and um, that resonates very well with me. And the idea that you were just going to build one widget that's magically going to secure everything and you're going to solve the problem, that was not going to work. And there were actually a number of companies, including some of the ones you mentioned, that started out with that premise, that if we just sprinkle some AI on top of cyber, you know, that's going to be the solution. And that's just not how things work. And that humans were a critical part of this. Intelligence was a critical part to this early on. 
in the company history, we had this tagline of you don't have a malware problem, you have an adversary problem. And it was important, not just sort of as a fun thing to, to put funny names on, on things, but to highlight to people that there were real human beings coming after you with particular objectives, that this was not some sort of vague, abstract threat. You had an objective from, from an adversary's perspective. You had particular skill sets, particular tradecraft. And it was really, really important to use intelligence to understand that and to weave that into your solutions. And ultimately, the way you win is to have the best team on your side, on the defensive side, the best humans that are able to leverage tools very effectively to thwart actors with lightning speed. It all comes down to speed. So I think that philosophy was first and foremost um, the, the most important thing that, that we had. The second thing uh, was the cloud. And um, I, I've been a huge fan of the cloud um, since the early days of my career in cybersecurity. Back at Cypher Trust, we built one of the first cloud-based security systems, reputation system, where even though uh, we were selling these appliances that people would put in their enterprises to detect spam and, and block email threats. We realized early on that collective security was really important. So we built a system where um, all these appliances would talk to our cloud. We would see the threats that were coming in. We would be able to analyze them and respond to them. So I knew the power of, of, of using the cloud. And um, at, the, at the time on the endpoint, that really was not a thing. Uh, you still had... AV largely functioning through updates, these DAT files that would be sent once a day to you. Of course, at the time when new threats would come out, you know, every minute, every hour, um, the idea that you could push an update once a day and protect someone uh, was just ludicrous. So a cloud-based system was essential to not just rapid protection, but also from the manageability perspective. If we did away with these old database servers that are on-prem that manage this complex endpoint infrastructure that everyone struggled with. I remember McAfee had the Department of Defense as its largest client, and there was something on the order of 60 management servers that the DoD had to deploy to manage the McAfee installations. It was ridiculous. It was a nightmare. They had so many people uh, working on that, trying to, to keep it up, maintain it, and um, a much better solution was, of course, um, the emergent sort of SaaS solutions where you just have one cloud dashboard, you log in and you manage everything. So that was another critical realization that we had made early on. Um, and at the time it was very controversial because no one was doing it. And I can tell you, uh, it was frustrating in the early days meeting with some prospective clients in the banking sector and other large companies who were intrigued by our approach of how we were thinking about the problem, were on board with the types of the ways that we were trying to solve it on the endpoint, recording everything analyzing it, looking for behaviors, but literally would tell us we will never use a solution because it's cloud-based. We do not trust the cloud. And we really stuck to our guns and we said, you know what, that, um, we'll come back to you or you'll come back to us in a few years, but we're not going to build an on-prem solution because maintaining both, uh, I've seen that in my career, just never works. Um, you, you dilute your engineering resources. You start inevitably building for the lowest common denominator, which is always on-prem. You don't take the full advantage of the multi-tenancy, the aggregation of data that the cloud gives you. And most of our competitors, in fact, I think all of our competitors chose the other solution. But um, even the ones that did build something in the cloud inevitably had an on-prem solution. And inevitably what turned out is that they just took the on-prem solution, stuck in a data center and called it a cloud. And of course, you don't get any of the benefits of scalability, of multi-tenancy, of data aggregation analytics when you do that. 
And that really impaired them, I, I believe, fatally years later. Yep. No, that, that makes sense. Now, when you talk about cloud, Dimitri, you're talking about cloud as a backend for delivering the most up-to-date kind of endpoint security solution. And it sounds like you know that architectural choice was a big differentiator for you versus the competition. Uh, and rightfully so. Most of the companies we have seen in this billion-dollar B2B uh, trajectory, be it you know Snowflake or Databricks or MongoDB, a lot of the growth has overlapped you know, with a cloud-native architecture, right? What about the cloud itself as an attack vector? Because you started the journey protecting endpoints. As more and more resources move to the cloud, whether it's your software or your infrastructure, your servers, when did the cloud itself become an important enough attack vector for CrowdStrike to protect? Uh, and what was the net impact of that to your business? You know, it took a while. It's funny, when we started building the solution in 2011, um, I tasked my, my head of um, infrastructure, Jeff Stabolsky, to start looking at where do we want to build the solution? And believe it or not, I mean, it sounds funny now. At the time, it was a legitimate question because you had AWS that was just emerging as a sort of capable solution, still had very, very few services. It had S3 and a few other things, but nothing like uh, what it is right now in terms of the capabilities that it's got. And you had a variety of other actors, Rackspace and, and others that were legitimate competitors. And, and he went off and did a bunch of research and came back and was like, I think we should bet on, on AWS. I think uh, uh, even though they don't have all the bells and whistles now, they're improving very rapidly. And that was ultimately a fateful decision that, of course, was the right decision um, and helped us a lot. But that cloud adoption cycle, you know, took a little while and it took a long time for the adversaries to actually notice that this migration was taking place and that's where a lot of the data was moving. So probably three or four years after we got started, did we start to see some of the earliest attacks on the cloud and started paying attention to this. And of course, for us, it was really important to make sure that our own cloud infrastructure would be protected. So we took a lot of internal lessons learned from how do we protect CrowdStrike to how do we adopt that to protecting others. Got it. And Dimitri, what scale was that roughly? Like one debate I have with many founders, CEOs in the journey to a billion dollars is when do you really diversify into a suite of products, right? Because if you diversify too early, then you didn't pick the, the right market for your first product. If you diversify into additional products too late, then you know you might give up a competitive edge. In your case, when did that second product vector of kind of cloud attack surface and cloud protection, uh, what scale of revenue did that come into being? And do you feel like you're too early or too late to that opportunity? So it actually came on day one, and I'll explain it. But um, I don't think about it as, as diversification of products. I think about it as solving the problem. How do we protect people from these breaches? And as I mentioned before, one of the key to our philosophies was understanding adversaries, understanding what they're trying to do, how they operate. So we actually launched before we had the endpoint solution built. Uh, we started building, of course, on day one, and most of the efforts in the company was into building that platform. But we started offering our intelligence service um, um, as a paid product to customers because we were seeing all this visibility from our consulting business, from the incident response investigations we were doing, from the intelligence research that the team was building to what was going on. And we started getting inbounds of people saying, hey, we'd like to buy these reports that you guys are putting out publicly. Can you sell them to us? And so we ended up, um, you know, sort of almost stumbling into the subscription service um, 
for an Intel product, which is now you know a significant category in the overall cybersecurity ecosystem. But it wasn't just like, oh, let's go uh, find a product to build. It was, we knew it was a critical component in the overall solution of stopping breaches. And that's why we did it. You know, from a platform perspective, it all emerged very naturally. So we started with EDR. Of course, it wasn't called EDR at the time, but later Gartner uh, created a name for it. Um, and we, we honestly probably waited too long to introduce protection capabilities, to introduce basically AV replacement so that we could go after McAfee and Symantec. And I, and I think, you know, we misread the market a little bit. Um, to be honest with you, I was skeptical that having spent you know, a number of years at McAfee and knowing the deep relationships that they had, not just at the CISA level, but the CIO level, it was sort of like IBM. No one ever got fired for, for buying McAfee. I was skeptical that we could come in quickly and convince all these major enterprise customers that had spent so many millions of dollars with these McAfee and Symantec and Trend over the years to just replace them and put you know, this small startup in. Uh, most people realized at the time that McAfee and Symantec weren't really protecting them. So having another solution in place, another layer that would provide them the visibility into the attacks and, and allow them to respond to it was very attractive. Uh, but uh, to be honest with you, I didn't think that people would so quickly decide, you know what, I'm okay dropping this monolithic uh, on-prem, you know, 30-year-old legacy solution out of my network. And, and I have to give credit where credit is due. Silence came along, focusing on the AV market, not really doing EDR, which I think was a, was a strategic mistake for them. Uh, but they had spent hundreds of millions of dollars of their investors' money um, seeding the market with this notion that AVs are uh, reparably broken and that it was time to replace them with a modern, more modern solution. You know, ironically, they sort of paved the way for us in convincing customers with their uh, marketing investments that the time was right to throw out these guys. And, and that's when we decided to double down, build in protective capabilities into the platform and started offering the AV module and then other modules came later. Got it. Got it. Very helpful. Dimitri, we touched a lot upon kind of technology and product decisions you made along the way. Uh, can we kind of switch gears a bit to the go-to-market motion? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, bottoms-up, product-led motions, and how that's a key to success for many companies. You clearly decided to go the enterprise, you know, top-down sales motion and were immensely successful at it. Uh how did you guys weigh that? How did you guys decide, hey, should we go sell top down to CISOs versus bottoms up to practitioners? And what were the pros and cons that you guys thought through in that decision making process? Well, it was always both. Um, so anytime you, you're doing enterprise sales, it's really important to identify all the people that are the influencers, the buyers, the budget holders, uh, people that may object to the deal. So we were, uh, and, and one of the things we did, of course, is we hired a lot of really senior enterprise salespeople, uh, phenomenal people we had worked with at McAfee that, you know, were incredibly successful selling what I think was a very subpar solution in McAfee's portfolio. So we knew if we gave them a great product, they would just kill it. And they did. Uh, but it was, you know, mapping out the account, figuring out how do we get to that problem that they're facing in that they don't have visibility, they're suffering these breaches, they don't even know um, when these breaches occur and they find them years later. And we could come up with a solution that uh, would give them that peace of mind and comfort. And, um, you know, we'd focus on the enterprise really heavily. From my experience in prior startups, I knew that if you can figure out the enterprise, you can go 
down into the market, it's much, much harder to go the other way. Mm -hmm. So um, we started building an enterprise product, an enterprise go-to-market strategy. And we knew that with a SaaS-based model, with a cloud-based solution, we would eventually be able to go uh, down into, into the mid-market, into the corporate level, and ultimately it proved out to be the right strategy. Now, did that change when you went to you know, your cloud product line? You know, if you're protecting cloud assets, did you guys think about a self-service product where practitioners on the cloud could buy the product without engaging with sales? Because there's a lot of debate about you know, self-service, pay-as-you-go products on the cloud uh, versus kind of engaging with enterprise sales for that product line. Yeah, so so uh, you know we, we we broke up our sales team ultimately into you know um, enterprise teams and corporate teams and, and uh, inside sales teams and depending on the size of the customer, obviously it would ha- be a different engagement. We ended up releasing later on uh, a free trial solution where people could just go in and sign up for a trial without talking to anyone, um, and then we would call them and, and, and try to close the deal. So that was all important later on once the business was at scale to helping taking it to the next level. Um, early on, we were just focused on closing whatever deals we could find. In fact, I remember we had an early conversation uh, with one of the board members who was probing to us, and this was literally a year after we actually launched the product, and he was uh, probing us on, well, wh- what segments of the market are you focused on? Are you going to go after retail? Are you going after finance? Like, wh- what's your strategy? And we're sort of so puzzled at that question. We're like, our market is whoever is going to buy the product. That's our market. If it's going to be a retail shop, we'll sell it to them. If it's going to be a bank, we'll sell it to them. But it, it's really uh, going to be completely dependent on where the demand is. And it's not going to be sector-based. It's just going to be who, who understands the problem. And we had this litmus test early on with the sales team. If we came into um, a customer... And we would ask them if they had an APT problem, if they had a nation state problem. And if they gave us a blank stare, we knew that we were going to get absolutely nowhere and it was time to wrap up the meeting and, and move on. Um, if they jumped in and said, yes, we actually had an incident last year. We hired Mandiant. Uh, we know all about this. This is a big problem. Then you knew that you know, um, there was gold to strike there. And uh, we spoke the same language. One of the sort of early telltale signs for us of whether that customer is going to be, um, or that prospect is going to be a potential customer, was the background of the CISO. If the CISO had come out of the government, the intelligence community, law enforcement, they had seen the classified side of things about the threat, um, maybe they were involved in many investigations, and, and you know that um, had changed their mindset about the problem and what they should be concerned about, our likelihood of success was very high. Got it. Okay. What about pricing, Dimitri? In that case, you know, obviously somebody who had a you know perceived risk of their assets under attack, obviously the value it's kind of hard to quantify. But how did you guys think about value-based pricing in that context? Well, you know, early on you're just trying to sell the product. So honestly, it was like, how much budget do you have? That's the price, <laughs> right? And uh, <laughs> particularly, you know, before this became a category, right? People didn't have an EDR budget because EDR didn't exist as a category. So you sort of had to come in and say, hey, I know you, you've invested you know, a couple million bucks into McAfee or Symantec or Trend. Uh, you know it's not working for you. You need another solution. But, you know, where can we get the budget for putting something else in place? And, you know, it was pretty hard early on to, you know, you kind of had to scrap dollars from different parts of the business um, to, to pay for something like us. Um, you know, eventually that changed and EDR became a budget category. People started planning for it and so forth. 
so that became easier. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, people expect to pay a certain price for an endpoint. So that was kind of set. Like you know, we couldn't like completely come in and reinvent everything um, and change the way they would buy endpoint solutions. That was just not in the cards. Um, one of the things that we were adamant about is that we were not going to do perpetual. This was this was a SaaS product, cloud-based product. It's only subscription. And, and, you know, that posed some early on some challenges for us because I remember we had customers that said, we just don't buy subscription services. Uh, customers in the utility sector, for example, everything is CapEx to them. So you had to kind of do some creative accounting um, where you would do a three-year deal that they would treat as a CapEx, but it's really a subscription service for us um, to, to get through some of those objections. Again, that changed mm. as, as things evolved and SaaS became very popular. Of course, everyone now buys SaaS services and Everyone gets OPEX, but but at the time, ten years ago, that wasn't that wasn't everyone. Yeah, yeah. You talk about SaaS and OPEX. I mean, I now see a shift, you know, in this whole consumption-based pricing model, which is, you know, you, you give customers the flexibility of you know consuming as they go and paying as they go. Obviously, that increases a lot of volatility, both for both sides, right? So, any point of view on this consumption pricing, and if that's something that uh, that CrowdStrike considered. Yeah, you know, it's hard to do it in security. What is consumption? We had a piece of it because remember, we're taking all this data and we're sending it to the cloud. So there was like real storage and processing costs that we had to endure from all this data. And in fact, it was substantial cost because we were sending basically, you know, every endpoint event that would occur, millions of events every day to the cloud. So, so we were incurring bandwidth costs, storage costs, analytics costs uh, for all of that. So, you know, we had to get paid for that. Um, and people kind of got that because they would be spending that money anyway on their on-prem infrastructure, on Splunk licenses and the like to to, to try to do this. Um, so that was, you know, the, the one piece that we had about consumption. Uh, but everything else was was just, you know, endpoint based. Dimitri, just kind of shifting gears a bit to, you know, people, culture, kind of the hiring characteristics. Uh, any Any key characteristics of the executives and key contributors? that come to mind that, you know, you attribute your success to over the years? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was all about people, right? I mean, if you look at why we succeeded, um, we understood the problem. You know, my experience with, with these investigations really highlighted to me how big the problem was before most people even realized that that was critical. Um, we had an idea of how we could address it through some innovative cloud-based tech. Uh, but really the key ingredient to all of this was hiring the best of the best. That was always my rule of thumb for anything that I've been involved in, to hire people that are smarter than me, that are better than me in every way. And um, that's what I set out to, to do early on because I knew that building something of this complexity would be super, super hard. And we needed to find literally the best people in the world to do it. And I knew that we couldn't be constrained by geography. Um, so, you know, it's funny because nowadays, of course, with COVID, everyone's, uh, or most people have moved to this remote model. We were one of the pioneers in that. The whole company was distributed from day one. The first 12 or 13 people that are hired were in five states and two countries. Um, and we only expanded from there because, you know, I realized that for me to get this talent, I can't be in one city because these people are all over the place. I can't be in one country. So we had to make the distributed model work for, from a talent acquisition perspective. And I remember, you know, the board kept pushing on me every time, like, why are you hiring people everywhere? All your engineers are in different locations. Where is the center of gravity? And I, I was like, 
we don't have a center of gravity. Our center of gravity is our video conferencing system, which by the time was not Zoom. Uh, Zoom was just coming into play. So I don't know if the company would have succeeded had we not found Zoom fairly early on, uh, which just changed the game and, and made this whole distributing thing work way, way easier. So that was really, really important from a cultural perspective is just hire the absolute best. Um, the best hire, I think the most critical hire that I've made, uh, not just at CrowdStrike, but throughout my career was this gentleman by the name of Alex Ionescu, who was the leading authority on kernel development. He, he had co-written this book um, called um, Windows Internals that was all about the Windows kernel. He had actually worked at Apple um, on, on some really special projects there. So he understood the Mac operating system really well. And he had built um, uh, an open source operating system called React OS, which was basically a copycat to Windows, literally like the top guy in the world. And I tried to go after him to hire him. And it took me a month of back and forth trying to convince him, flew him out to one of our offsites, and ultimately sort of almost gave him the Steve Jobs pitch of, do you want to build phones for the rest of your life? Or do you want to go and fight spies and, and protect the nation? And uh, that's what ultimately convinced him. And uh, he joined the company, became a chief architect, helped design the whole solution, was absolutely critical to the success of the company, um, not just um, uh, in the early stages, but really um, to this day. Wow, that's amazing. Dimitri, what about on your journey, you know, from zero to 10 million to 100 million to a billion IPO, there's many inflection points along the way. when do you feel like, you know, the key people inflection points were, you know, were there elements of the, the business that transformed so much at some scale that you had to go bring on a different class of people? Like, what are some of those important inflection points? So, you know, it's interesting. We, we never thought about it this way because we set out from day one. We knew that we wanted to shoot for the stars and we wanted to build a huge company. Um, you know, I don't think any of us appreciated that we become this big, but we, we knew it, it could absolutely, if we uh, execute it, could become mul- uh, worth multiple billions of dollars. And, and, and our strategy from day one, uh, from the day we pitched um, to Warburg, was that we were going to take on and eventually replace McAfee and Symantec. Um, and, you know, McAfee at the time had just sold to Intel for seven, eight billion dollars. So, you know, that's what we're thinking. We could be an eight, maybe $10 billion company for a successful, right? Uh, the... Uh, Reality was that um, once we set uh, on that path from day one, we were hiring people and were looking for people that could take us the whole way. And we weren't sort of focused of, well, we'll bring this person in and we'll see if they scale and maybe we'll replace them in two years. It's much harder to, of course, recruit these, these rock stars when you know, there's nothing to the company but a PowerPoint slide. But if you sort of paint to them the big picture, if you paint to them the problem, if you motivate them by patriotism and, 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 and the idea of the selfless protection uh, of, of companies, of, of small businesses, of nonprofits, um, you know, that really resonates with a lot of people because they, they want a mission-oriented uh, job um, and they don't want to just go in and you know, collect a salary or, or stock options. Some people do, but those, those were not the people that we wanted to work with. So... Um, you know, the executive team really stayed together for the most part um, throughout the course of the, of the company. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that worked really well for us. That's amazing. What about the public company transition? How, how did that go? And 
how was it running a public company? Uh, anything you wish you had known before you went public? So, you know, that was another thing. Um, we um, thought that there was a good chance. Of course, you, you never know what happens, but there was a good chance that we would become a public company one day if, if we succeed. And we ran the company from day one as if it were a public company. It, it was really, really important for us not to miss quarters, to execute flawlessly, um, make sure that, you know, we have the right processing in place. So, uh, you know, obviously some things change um, when, when you go through an IPO process, but it really wasn't like a big on-off switch where everything changed at once. Um, and, um, you know, we, we were really, really well prepared for it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Dimitri, any, any other final lessons or takeaways that come to mind for other founders or product executives, you know, looking to, to build a billion-dollar B2B company? Yeah, a couple of things. Talent is everything. Hire the best people you possibly can. Don't ever, ever settle. You know, nowadays I'm working with a bunch of companies as a board member, helping advise CEOs on how to become the next CrowdStrikes. And I see people saying, well, you know, I've got done a search. This person, you know, maybe are okay. I'll, I'll, I'll see if they work out in two years. And I'm coming and saying, no, if you get that gut feel of, I don't know if they'll scale, chances are you're right. Always, always go with your gut shoot for the stars, try to hire the best person you possibly can and, and work really hard, even harder than you work to sell a customer, work to sell someone that you want to join the team. Um, that's number one. No, number two, with the culture, and this was particularly important to us because we were such a remote and distributed company, um, one of the things that's very challenging for people now doing remote is that it's completely remote. Everyone is on their Zoom screen, never meeting in person. Um, and and it's just really, really hard to make that work. Um, for me, it was really important to bring people together, um, have offsites, small team offsites, um, because it became impractical very quickly to have an all-company offsites once we grew to be above 200 people or so. Uh, became too expensive, but we still insisted on bringing people together, having offsites, and we could afford because we weren't spending so much money on offices to bring people to great places. We had offsites in Hawaii, we had offsites in Portugal. The third thing I would say is that it's really, really important to um, solve a problem. And particularly in security, I see so many companies, we have, I don't know, five, 10,000 companies in the security ecosystem now, and I get pitched by them on a daily basis. And so many of them are coming to me with a solution in search of a problem. Um, so many of them are building products uh, to secure things that are not even being attacked today, and who knows if they'll ever be attacked. I remember companies that pitched me on VoIP security. And I was like, where are the VoIP attacks? And they were talking to me about these theoretical academic papers. And, you know, you're basically betting on the fact that maybe someday some criminal will realize that there's money to be made there. Maybe they won't. And you can build the best solution in the world, but it's not going to do anything because the problem is not there. People ultimately, particularly in security, uh, but really in every, every other segment as well, buy first and foremost solutions that will help solve an eminent problem for them. That's amazing. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Dimitri, for joining us on Battery's Billion Dollar B2B podcast.